Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and and I'm in a different part of the country. I I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email from a listener who says, hey, Carol, I have been listening to your podcast for years. I am so thankful. I'm learning so much that I'm still floundering. It's been 24 months since D-Day, and I've experienced staggered disclosures. Yep, that can happen. And I still don't believe the truth is all out. My husband has done a little bit of recovery, but he, he's just not feeling like he can get total recovery. He doesn't believe it's attainable. We've been separated for over 14 months. And I wonder why I haven't heard your podcast address when husbands aren't really committed to recovery. You see, my husband is dragging his feet, and he's not helping his wife. In other words, he's not supporting me emotionally and is avoiding. And so I don't know what to do, Carol. I love him, and I want to be with him but he doesn't seem to be doing his work. Okay, that's, that's half of the email. Now, you all know that I have worked diligently to help couples heal, and one of the ways that they can heal is if the sex addict is in good recovery. So already, she says, my husband is not in good recovery. So, first of all, I'm going to call her. I want to make sure it's not the right name. Mary, Mary, I want to say that this is so hard for you to have to wait when in reality he's not doing his work. 
Now, maybe he doesn't know how to do his work. Maybe he's not been instructed to do his work. Many of you know I have that 10-point recovery requirement. And what I mean by that is he should be working 10 recovery tools. So I'm going to go over them one more time, and then I'm going to read the rest of your email. You know, the first five have to do with support. I happen to be a proponent of the 12-step model, but he can do Recovery Nation. He can do Smart Recovery. If here's what I believe, he needs to go to meetings. And since your husband is having trouble really sticking with recovery, he needs lots of meetings. Mary, this is imperative. Now, he can do meetings in his own area, SAA or SA, as Sex Addicts Anonymous or Sexaholics Anonymous, or he can go online and get the meetings. There's no excuse for him not doing meetings. So, Mary, it's not like I'm being hard on him, but if he's not willing to do the work, you're not safe. And by safe, I mean you're not going to be assured that he is working a diligent enough program to make it worth your while to keep working on the relationship. You see, this is the hardest addiction to beat. Sex addiction, or as the uh, World Health Organization is calling it, problematic compulsive sexual behavior. If he's not working a program that's strong, He's not going to be able to do it. So I say lots of meetings for him, at least three to five, maybe 90 and 90. It kind of depends on how many slips does he have. How assured are you that you're getting the right information? Okay. With the 12-step meeting, he should get a mentor or a sponsor, at least a temporary. He should be reading the green or the white book. That's for SAA or SA. He should be doing the 12-step work. Mary, if he's not in a meeting that does 12-step work, he should be working that with a sponsor. He should not be doing it alone. And Mary, I got to tell you, if he is doing it alone, he will fail. I don't mean to be negative, but I've never met an addict who could do it on their own. Okay. The last one of my five recovery tools, really there are 10, but the first five have to do with meetings, is that he needs to be talking to fellowship. You know, I was just talking to an alcoholic today that he's got his sex addiction down, but he doesn't have his alcoholism down. And what we know is that there are other addictions and they're active, they'll probably prompt the other addictions. And I said to him, you know what? You need to be changing your attitude. You need to be looking forward to fellowship, which is the fifth tool. You need to be calling guys. You need to be meeting them for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. You need to be doing some couples things. You need to create a whole new fellowship that works. That is imperative. Now, the other five are that he needs to be going to a CSAT, a Certified Sexual Addictions Therapist. Go to sexhelp.com and see if there is a CSAT in your area. 
And if there isn't, there are plenty of us that do it online. Now, there are some therapists that can um, do telehealth online so they can help you. And then there are other therapists, like myself, that are coaches and they're mental health therapists. So they put their coach hat on and they help the two of you figure out what you need to make the relationship work, to make his recovery work, and to help you with your trauma. Because what I know is if he's not in good recovery, you've got trauma and you've got drama. And wow, that's a lot for you to have to deal with. Now, the other five tools, again, are to go to a CSAT and to get himself into, if at all possible, a sexual addiction therapy group. That's different than a 12-step group. And, you know, I know that I run one in my community, and Patrick Carnes told me, we all know Patrick Carnes is the guru of sexual addiction. He started this movement, and he's a psychologist. He had this affliction. He has donated his life to helping people to heal. And he said in the thousands and thousands of men and women that he's worked with, he has never found one person who could do it by himself. And he's told me, he said, Carol, as a clinician, if there is one thing you can do, one thing to provide good adjunct therapy to your individual work is start a group. These guys need a therapy group. Okay, I took his advice. I wasn't sure if men would want to come to a group. And I've now been doing it for almost 10 years. I've actually even written a, uh, a manual on how to do it. And it has made all the difference in the world. Now, the next tool, tool number eight, is to journal, pray, and meditate. At least one of those, if not two or three. Because your husband needs, he needs quiet time to pay attention to what is in his best interest. He will always get that information. And that will combat what the addict in him says. Then he needs to have accountability tools. He needs to have things that will help him succeed like covenant eyes and other filters on his phone, his laptop, his computer. Maybe you need GPS just to know where he is when you need to know where he is. There's nothing wrong with that, Mary. You have a right after betrayal to know what's going on. And then if there is um, a polygrapher in your area that does sexual addiction testing, that can really help him stay honest. This is a hard thing for him to beat. And it's not to bust him, it's to help him. So that is tool number nine. Tool number 10 is that he needs to participate in healthy outer circle behaviors. That means go to church or have a hobby or exercise or do something with you. Okay, those are the 10 tools, Mary. Now, you have said 
that he seems like he's dragging his feet and not helping you. And he's actually avoiding the relationship. She says, I go to a therapist and COSA and Essanon, and he goes to SA sometimes. He sees a CSAT once a month and oftentimes misses his appointments. And there are no consequences. He's been writing a disclosure for more than six months. And I don't believe he's close to completing it. Well, guess what? Here's what I believe due to my APSATS model. That is the partner-sensitive model that I use. He needs three months of good recovery, and he needs to do a disclosure. You need to know the truth, and it needs to be followed by a polygraph test. And that is an imperative in your relationship, and I'm so sorry, Mary. You know, the last thing I want to tell you is that he needs a polygrapher to help him to get honest, but it helps him and it helps you. She says, Mary says, we're a couple of faiths. He met in church and I love him, but we've had problems. Before marriage, he actually forced himself on me two or three times. And I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know if it was me. I didn't know what I know now. I didn't know he'd be going from woman to woman for sex. Now, she says, we need to go confess to our pastor. But he continues to talk about making it look consensual. Now, I'm not sure what she's talking about there, but I have a feeling that is what she references, the date rape. She married him, but didn't love him. And now they have three grown kids. And she says, Carol, please address this issue on your show. What happens if my husband is not doing his work? Well, Mary... That is the hardest thing in the world because you need to feel safe. And if he's not doing those things to make you feel safe, then I can't say get a divorce. I wouldn't do that. But what I can say is he sounds like he's not ready. He is not ready to give up his addiction. So you need to do whatever it is to keep you safe. Maybe that's boundaries. Maybe you have a therapeutic separation. You don't want to leave the house. You um, are comfortable. You financially don't feel like you can do it. Well, then have some boundaries. Decide, can he be in your bedroom? Does he need to sleep on the couch? Does he need to sleep in the basement? What do you need, Mary? And if you have no power in this relationship, What are your COSA and Essanon friends saying? I know that you need to be working on yourself, but you have every right to ask him to participate in relational commitments like honesty and authenticity and empathy. And if he's not in good recovery and he hasn't told you the truth, there is not a chance in Hades 
that you're going to get your needs met. So start meeting your own needs in healthy and safe ways. Increase your friendships. Find things that make you happy. Really work on not being dependent on him for your happiness. If he's not in good recovery, that's what you got to do. You got to take care of you. And you know what? There's no guarantee. I want you to take care of you because it's the right thing to do. But many times when a partner really starts taking care of herself, the addict says to himself, you know what? I got to bump this up. I got to bump it up for her. I'm not happy. And I won't say the magic happens because this is a lot of hard work. But what I tell all my addicts and my partners that when they do the next right thing, it works. And when you work a program, it works. And if you can decide what your boundaries are, it works. So last but not least, Mary, I would tell you to go to the APSATS website. That's A-P-S-A-T-S. And that website will help you find a partner-sensitive therapist who can direct you into feeling safer. Because this is a tough situation. You've been married for a long, long time. And you're not sure what to do. Don't try to do it all by yourself. Get the support you need. And Mary, you wrote me so I know that you're ready to hear the truth. Even if you can't get it from him, you can find it on your own. And here's what I believe. I wrote about it in my new book, Help Her Heal. It is an empathy workbook for sex addicts to help their partners heal. And if he can get clean, and if he can do the disclosure, and if he can begin to work on empathy, he can help you to heal. Now, I know it sounds far-fetched, but that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. It is so important to develop empathy. So I have a specialist on, and her name is Leanna Allison, and she's an expert in empathy and emotional maturity. And she's going to be talking about how to manage negative emotions and use them to develop empathy. So she's going to be sharing her method of how she coaches people and how the skills that she has determined can bring together connection in all relationships, not just a marriage, but all relationships. So stay tuned because we are lucky enough to have Leanne Allison on. Leanne, how are you? This is Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol. It's wonderful to, to be with you. Absolutely. And are you in the UK right now? I'm in Australia. Australia. Okay. And so what time is it there? Because right now it's 9 p.m. in the United States on the eastern side. It's um, 11.20 in the morning here in Australia. Oh, very good. Well, good. I'm glad you're not up in the middle of the night. I was so happy to have you on because empathy is the number one topic I've been talking about. I really feel like in all relationships, Empathy promotes connection. So I was so interested in hearing about your work. I know you coach people on how to develop empathy. And 
I wanted you to tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to develop this topic for so many of your clients. Sure. Well, to start with, um, my journey started like everyone's journey way back when um, in my childhood, uh, I was a very uh, emotionally expressive child. So I had very, very deep feelings. And in my environment, they were not accepted um, and they were uh, certainly not a tool that was required in my family of origin. So um, that was my starting of shutting down on being um, emotionally connected um, and emotionally connected not only with myself but with others. So it took quite some time until probably I was around about 40, I think, where my body and uh, my mind and my heart was telling me that something was wrong. You know, I was really successful in life. I had successful businesses, family, husband, all that sort of thing. But I was getting physically ill and mentally and emotionally, I was um, hitting overwhelm and breakdown. So that to me was my signal to actually find a different way, find out more about myself and what how I worked as an individual because I never really thought about it. I was just part of the collective and I didn't really know myself as an individual. And I think a lot of this journey for a lot of us in regards to connecting with our empathy and ourselves on the emotional level is, is changing from that collective journey to the individual journey of discovery of, around ourselves. Uh, I'm sure you would have found that yourself, Carol. Absolutely. So say a little bit more about that. Sure. So with um, the, the journey through uh, learning about my own, um, let's call it empath- empathic nature, uh, that started with breaking down my, the barriers that I'd put up, the protective barriers of my personality and what I'd been taught was valued in, in life, which was a strong mind, and um, not allowing emotions to dictate at all. So I had to find a way to soften those protective masks that we all have to actually look underneath and find out what was happening really, truly on the feeling side of myself and what was just um, habit and what I've practised. And when I did that, I discovered there was a whole amount of energy and uh, for, let's call it life energy, that I was ignoring and trying. And I was using it to hold all of this inner part of me down, keeping it quiet. And once I started realizing that I was doing that, it allowed me to then discover the emotions that I was holding and what they were trying to tell me. So not only were they... Um, like a guidance system system for me, they were also helping me connect with other people because I always felt disconnected. I always felt separate from everyone else. And I realised it was because I was separate from a major part of myself and I wasn't letting that out or anybody else in. So that was a huge wake-up moment for me in regards to the value that I needed to put on my emotional nature and the understanding of it and how to use it in a way that was far more empowered. And, and that took um, a few years of discovery, I would say. 
And in that oh, time, bet. yeah, it was it was such a journey, and it, it's ongoing to me. I, I learn every day, and with my clients, I learn something new about myself every single day. And to me, that's the joy of actually being able to help people is I get to learn and grow at the same time, and the to show people how their emotions can actually be used in a way that um, not only empowers them but makes life so much deeper and joyful and um, connection with everybody on a, a whole different level. And we get to understand. Like We don't actually just see people for who they are on the outside. We get to understand who they are on the inside, which comes to that being um, full of empathy for people because we understand their journey. We understand their pain or their joy because we're connected with it from ourselves. The, the trick is to actually understand it, not to fall into it as, and be a part of it with them. So we're still separate individuals, but able to really connect with people and understand people and um, be compassionate towards people without losing ourselves in that. Well, and you have said that, you know, emotional meltdown is kind of the opposite of that is is an opportunity to, again, explore what is it that I need to connect to people as opposed to melt down and push them away. So this invitation that you believe approaches the situation in a a different way, instead of feeling shame and guilt and anger, can allow you to say, okay, what can I do to get closer? And, you know, one of the things that I believe that is, healthy relationships, conflict breeds intimacy. So I'm a proponent Mm. of conflict as long as people handle it healthily. And empathy. Exactly. If somebody shows empathy, then they have that healthy skill. So can you share with us a little bit about what is the difference between being empathetic and being empathetic, you know, there's a difference between being empathetic and being empathetic, and which one do you want to be? Yes, t- totally. There's a lot of people, um, and I've just touched on it in a little bit, but a lot of people um, put themselves in someone else's situation. So they think by caring and being empathetic, it's about um, they straight away feel like the other person's situation is their own at some level. So they put themselves in in their shoes and at some level they will ask themselves, if if it was me experiencing this this, um, event, how would I feel and what would I do and how would I react? And they immediately assume the other person would do exactly the same thing, which is a trap because they will then want to fix it. And any time we want to fix something or make something wrong and therefore fix it, um, that takes away our um, autonomy of ourselves because we're caught up in the event. We're caught up in whatever the other person is feeling. And that just basically consumes us. And we don't get to see it from, um, let's call it the third person perspective or as an observer with no emotional attachment. And to have real 
empathy, we have to be able to be emotionally um, caring but detached in a way because in that detachment we're not wanting to fix them. We want to support them. We want to connect with them, but we don't want to fix them. And that's a key word, I think, is, is the fixing that we want to do. We make something that someone else is feeling wrong and therefore have to fix it. And therefore, we're in it straight away. And we lose our power. We lose our separateness. And we get caught up in our history of that same emotion. And one of the things that people really look at with um, connecting with others is particularly the, the emotion of anger. If someone is angry, then our history of how we feel about anger anger lights up and we're straight away can we go into like that childlike state of the time that we remember when we got into really big trouble and, and mum or dad or someone that we love got really angry at us and we lose our power and we turn into that person from that past event now the thing with emotional mastery and um, emotional intelligence is being able to recognize the emotions without having the history attached to it so that we're free to actually see look somebody's angry right now and maybe that's how they're meant to be because anger is such a um, it's a moving kind of emotion isn't it when when we get angry we can't sit still so it can be actually used to take different action to make different choices and that's a very useful thing so for us as to be empathetic with people we have to be able to see them as okay as they are. They're that, they're that way mm -hmm. for a reason. And that reason, we may not know what it is or how it will work, but we have to trust that they're there for a reason and we have to stay really solid in ourselves so that we're holding a space for them to change, not jumping into the bucket of change with them. Does that make sense, Carol? Yes, absolutely. And yet, um, one of the things that I believe is that you can't fix someone exactly like you just stated very clearly. And at the same time, when, when somebody is wounded, if you're the person has, that has wounded them, it's important to hear what they have to say and put yourself in their shoes and restate it for them so that they know that you understand what pain they're feeling. That's not fixing them. That's saying, I'm hearing you, I'm with you, and I understand what I'm seeing totally. before me. Yeah. Yes, I and agree. I agree, ways, Carol. Yeah, it's empathetic it's leadership in a way. It is, it is. And the, the thing with doing that, is having the ability to um, compassionately um, hear and like that's a part of leadership is obviously the ability to listen without being caught in any sort of um, situation that's going on around you in, in a way that um, disempowers you. So yes, we have to be compassionate. We have to listen. We have to have the understanding and the connection with the with our partners if um, they're trying to connect with us and explain how they're feeling or what's going on for them. 
that there's just a, the, it sounds like a very small key, but to me it's a major key of, as you said, not fixing, but staying uh, solid in our own sense of self and, and not sacrificing well, anything of ourselves for the, 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 um, the situation. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I do on this show is I help fractured relationships. So many people who have addictions have wounded their partner, either accidentally yeah. by virtue of the yeah. fact that the partner loves them, or not intentionally but directly because they betrayed their partner. And yeah. yet the, the coupleship wants to stay together, and so... I have to help them figure out what they can do to help their partners heal. And let's face it, I'm talking sex addicts in this situation. Sex addicts know that they did wrong, and yet it was such a compulsive act, they couldn't stop until they knew how to stop. And once they have stopped, it's important for them to recognize the pain that they've caused, and that requires empathy. And I say Certainly. that it's, impor- it's important for them to acknowledge the pain that they've caused, validate whatever feeling they're seeing, and reassure the person of the changes that they're making. And, and that means that the addict, him or herself, has to really take a step away from all of it so that they cannot be wounded by the partner's pain. Do you believe the yes. same to be true? Yes. Okay. Yes, definitely. Because it's it's if we take um, if our partner does something and we take it personally, it may feel personal mm-hmm. and it may be um, it, it's our natural instinct to take it personally because they're our partners. But the the thing is, it's not us. It's them that's done it, and or the other way around. Mm-hmm. But if we can keep in mind that um, if we don't bring our personal history into it and, and make it personal, then we're able to be far more um, empathic or empathetic with each other and, and see it for what it is and to be able to forgive more easily and to be able to not make, um, let's say, stories around the feelings that we're feeling, the hurt and the pain or the um, whatever it is that is going for each individual, if we can not make, uh, add to it by um, saying, well, what you did made me feel hurt and that means da-da-da-da, whatever that story is that you add on to it. It's the meaning story that can hold us trapped for so long if we can actually just have the clear and empathetic connection with um, true personal um, individuality, things can be forgiven and moved on from far more quickly from my viewpoint. Yeah, so let's say, if, if we can, that we are teaching addicts, Liana, how to have mm-hmm. empathy because they have, fractured the relationship and they've wounded the partner and I always say they have to be in good recovery Uh, they have to be in sobriety and they have had to go through this disclosure process that's where they tell her everything 
And then typically, believe it or not, I don't know if you're aware of this over in Australia, but then they it's followed by a polygraph test to assure the partner that they are telling the truth. Mm-hmm. They do want to make a difference. And yet the addict at that point, even though he's in a good recovery, it's a dual situation where he feels really good about his recovery. He's being the person that he's always wanted to be. And yet he's watching the woundedness of the partner and he, it can take him to shame. And empathy and shame mm. don't go hand in hand. You can't have them both functioning at the same time. So first of all, I'm going to ask you about five questions that have to do with this kind of scenario. Um, tell me, what is your definition of empathy? For somebody empathy. who had an addiction who is really working on recovery. Okay, so um, if they're looking to develop empathy, I think it's mm-hmm. a, uh, a really about them finding the ability to allow the other person, honour the other person's feelings. So it's not about justification or um, validation or anything like that. It's about honouring that the other person has deep feelings that need to be acknowledged and the thoughts that need to be um, able to be voiced and to be heard without um, re-justifying or um, re-validating the fact that they are in recovery. So it's it's holding, what I call holding space. So empathy is very much about being able to be the listener, being able to um, honour whatever emotions that are coming up without making them wrong and to allow the other person just to be expressive in a, in a place of total acceptance of it without, um, obviously, if it's being projected in a way that is um, unhealthy, then that's a totally different situation. But I'm talking about two people who are, really trying to make this work and that really comes down to a lot of women if we're talking about the woman as the one that's been hurt they need to have their emotions validated they need to be able to express them wholeheartedly uh, without any sort of judgment and I think that for somebody who has come through the journey and come out the side as an addict that's a skill to be learnt because the shame and et cetera can make them justify what's going on or their changes rather than just be silent and listen and to validate. But so that's my key for empathy for for the for the addict is to really allow the other person that free um, val- um honoring of the emotional mental state that they could be in and that will change obviously from moment to moment depending on on um, what they're processing through yeah so when you say that it might change depending on what they're processing through um, what might you see for somebody who is so shame laden and yet at the same time he or she knows that they're doing good work, but they go back and they see that shame. What would you 
what would you encourage them to do to protect themselves so they can do the empathy? So shame, um, it's, it's, that's an emotion, obviously, that happens um, when we do something that we um, uh, go against our values or uh, something that we don't want to have, have had done. So if we look at shame, the way to, to work through that is to look at, well, what has it given me? What is it a signal of? And shame is a signal of, I will never do this again. So instead of trying to push the shame away, we can actually use it as if I feel shame, I know I'm not going back there. I know that I won't do what I did previously because it feels so bad right now. So I always use the emotions as a tool. There's always two sides to it. And shame can be debilitating if you sit in it and get stuck in it and... Um, just want it to go away but if we use it as a tool to say I'm no longer that person I'm no longer mm-hmm. the person that will take those actions then you're using mm-hmm. it as a, in a powerful way yeah it's actually a tool from which to learn and a tool to remind you of how far you've come because exactly. you're in good recovery and I like that. That's reframing. That's allowing something negative in your life and turning it around and saying, now, how am I stronger from it? And what do I need to learn from it so that I can remind myself that I'm growing in the right direction? Exactly. Exactly. And it's really a key for um, making those moment by moment decisions. It will, Mm -hmm. it will come up and remind them if they, if they're, um, making a decision that's slightly off key, it will come up and they go, oh, hang on, I'm off track right now and and turn around and actually go in the direction that, that they will want to go into rather than whatever the addiction has caused previously. So one of the messages that you send to your clients is don't let those negative emotions scare you or or make you want to avoid the situation, you want to look at them as teaching tools, correct? Absolutely. I see every single emotion as a vital part of who we are. We just have never learned how to read them in a way that is productive and proactive and a guide to our best self and our best life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then if that's how you feel, and I absolutely agree with you, that is the number one way to handle a situation, it allows mm-hmm. them to better relate to those emotions. And, and actually something like guilt or shame can empower them to continue to do the next right thing. Absolutely, Carol. That's, yes, well, well put, but it's, it's a, it is a, the... They're guiding tools, and we just need to, instead of run away from them, turn around and look at those emotions and actually see what they're really there for. Yes, that makes total sense. Now, if you have a client in your office or you're working with them via phone or Zoom or Skype, um, how do you encourage them to grow from them, you know, to grow from that empowerment? 
So there's techniques, many techniques that I use that I teach people to use daily in regards to um, digging into their, their subconscious patterns where which holds the, the, the limiting beliefs and um, actions that we do. And mm-hmm. to use the emotions, it's always about not making them wrong. So if emotion came up, if we get triggered about something that's going on and we get angry anger is uh, a an emotion that as I said early very active emotion and it leads to passion so if we get angry about something something that's wrong in our view or our values then we are able to use the anger to direct change to get passionate about changing something that is not right and then finding creative ways to actually change a situation or make different choices or do different actions so that we're back on track and heading in the, in the life path that we really want. So the, the way to do that is always to be comfortable with investigating the emotions. And I think that's really the simplest way of putting it. It's, it's when people get angry, they quite often want to shut it down or even deny that they're angry. Um, I, I teach people how to turn and actually really um, be able to sit in the anger, not use it in a way that will hurt people, but really sit in it so that we learn from it, um, use it and immediately take some sort of action that is going to be um, proactive and productive for what we want. And that's as simple as well, it gets, really. Yes, and you know, you said something that I believe is instrumental to anybody's mental health, especially with addiction. You know, one of the things I ask people to do on a daily basis is to identify their primary feeling because feelings are not right or wrong. They just are. And then we as coaches help them to use that feeling to motivate them into greater change. So if somebody is feeling angry, because their partner has criticized them and put them down and reminded them of all the horrible things they did in the past, how might you encourage them to use that initial feeling of anger, like, well, you're not recognizing my changes, you don't get me, you're not wanting this relationship to work. How might you use that to his or her benefit? It's um, so in that situation, uh, the anger can be used in a way to make a space of um, self-validation, let's call it. Mm-hmm. So if, mm-hmm. if they're angry um, that their, their changes are not getting recognized, it's, it's then about, well, who am I making the changes for really? So if, if we want someone else to recognize our changes and to really, um, and for us to, to feel good by them uh, reconnecting with us, we are handing all of our power over to the other person. Now, we need to hold some of it back for ourselves. And when we get angry by, by not being validated, then that's because we're hoping that the other person by them accepting and, and, and validating us will 
we will feel better about ourselves. And so the anger is actually a... Uh, it looks like it's angry at someone else, but actually it's probably angry at themselves if we go deep enough into it. So we can use that then, go, well, okay, I'm really angry about what they said, therefore there's a part of me that's really angry with me about what has caused this to start with. So what do I need to do for myself to feel better about myself? So you turn it back onto the actual person that was angry, they use it for themselves rather than projecting it onto someone else who's um, not acting in a way that they would like. Does that make sense, Carol? Oh, 100%. And, and that is the healthiest way for somebody who is feeling all those um, disempowering feelings to turn it around and detach from it and then say, hey, now what can I learn from this so I can move forward? Exactly. Yeah, perfect. And, you know, I think that with anger, it's such a powerful energy, such a powerful emotion. It can actually make really big changes happen so much easier if we just direct it in a way that is really conscious and um, not projected. It's when we project these, uh, emotions onto other people and want other people to change to stop us from feeling that emotion then then we're trapped we're trapped in what the other person is going to feed back to us whereas if we we take ownership of it for ourselves we're in charge of um, our emotional well-being 100 percent and that helps us to feel empowered, and it reminds each one of us, and I'm sure you believe this too, my favorite coaching principle, because I'm a mental health therapist and I'm a coach too, and my favorite coaching principle is I am 100% responsible for my behaviors and reactions. So even if somebody T-bones me, they, they have an accident, they cause an accident, I'm still responsible for how I respond to the accident, how I respond to the person that hits me, when I call the insurance company, how I get my car fixed. I mean, I couldn't help that they hit me, but I am responsible for the whole environment around the accident. And it's the same thing with addiction. If somebody's in good recovery, but they're dealing with a loved one who is putting them down for that, they're responsible for figuring out how can I help this person? What can I do not only to help the person but to help myself to be a better, stronger person amidst this crisis? And, you know, you said earlier, and I so agree, nobody can fix anybody. We can support mm. them, but we can't mm. fix them. And so I love the fact that you're really saying, in reality, true empathy means also figuring out what each person needs to do to take care of themselves while they're putting themselves in another person's shoes. Absolutely, Carol. It's, um, it's, it's the old saying, it's um, number one first, which means you have to look after yourself first because if you don't, you've got nothing left 
to support the other person with. So you must always emotionally, mentally, physically feed yourself first before um, helping the other person to 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 make whatever changes they need to make as well. And it is their changes. So it, we can support them. But ultimately, the other person is also have to be self-responsible in regards to what they want to change and how they want to be as a person and to live. Um, and in doing that, both people then are connected and individual at the same time, which is how I think we all should be. We're individuals first and then we're connected second. And um, that's, that's a recipe for a far happier life, I believe. Oh, absolutely. And for our listening audience, I am talking to Liana Allison, and you can see her work by going to her website. It's www.lianaallison.com. Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N.com, dot A-U. And they can actually email you if they have a question or would like to work with you at contact at lianaallison.com, dot A-U. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And, you know, I'm, it's the um, social media world is always easy to find people. So you can always search me on, on um, Facebook and that sort of thing. I've got um, a, my Institute of Empathic Leadership has a page which is um, available for um, information and contact as well. So I would love to hear from people. Well, absolutely. And I can tell that, you know, when you told us your story about the fact that you really grew up in a family that didn't acknowledge feelings, deep down in your gut, and I always say we learn from our head, our hearts, and our gut, you knew that you had some work to do around emotions. And when you did that work yourself, you decided to pass that on to other people. And you actually call your coaching empathetic leadership. And so one last time, explain to our listening audience what you believe empathetic leadership is and why is it important for them to learn that from you and your courses and your coaching? Sure. So empathetic leadership to me is about being the best version of who we are, the leaders of ourselves in our life um, so that we are able to be emotionally free. So our whole mind, body, emotion flows freely in a, in a way that allows us to be true leaders of not only ourselves, but our our communities, um, our businesses, to be that shining light to to help others to also uh, understand themselves and to move into a life that they're meant to actually have. And this is these are the things that um, through this emotional mastery that I teach my clients. It's it, the techniques and things that I use are transferable so they can use them every day of their life because we will always have triggers there will all be, always be emotional issues happening in our life because that's what happens as a human being we're emotional beings so to have the tools to be able to work through them constructively and in an empowered way is really what it's all about and I want as many people in the world to be able to be as emotionally empowered and 
to be masterful in their leadership as I can. So I get quite passionate about about what I have to offer because with the, my programs, I've got a 12-week program which is called the Breakthrough Program and in those 12 weeks, I just see people change so fast and that's one of the things about the way that I work with emotions, it's fast. It doesn't take years and years of um, intensive work. It, within three months, there can be a massive change of not only how life looks, but how you use your internal tools, our emotions, in a way that will change your personality even to what it was meant to be, not what you've been taught to be. So, yeah, I've got so much that I want to share with people. It just bursts out sometimes and um, I'd be so happy <laughs> to be able to share it with more. Well, very good. So one more time, if they want to contact you, they can contact you at contact at liannaallison.com.au and your website is www.liannaallison.com. L-I-A-N-A, Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, dot com, dot A-U. Thank you so much for helping our listening audience. I believe empathy is the key to everything, and this is an amazing subject that you're willing to help other people work through and develop so that they can be the best person they can be. So, Liana, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Carol. It's been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely. We'll have you on again. You take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, again, there's obviously an expert who understands that you can take negative emotions and use them to be your best self. And that's what coaching is all about. It's figuring out a way to convert what's going on in your life and turn it around and be your best self. And that's why I always say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. Seriously, have the courage to be yourself. And hey, I would love for you to go on Amazon or on my website, Coach, and get my new book, Help, Period, Her, Period, Heal, an empathy workbook for sex addicts to help their partners heal. And uh, it will make a difference. I have partners buying and addicts. So I just, uh, I know that you need the help, and that's why I created the book. And if you'll go to Amazon and write a review, I'd really love that. Okay, that's enough of this, and I'll see you next week. Even though it's Labor Day, I've got a fabulous guest, and I'm going to be working just for you. This is Sex Help with Carol the Coach. I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and I want you to make it a great week. Talk to you soon.